Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Staffing shortages have been a standing issue for many Connecticut school districts. Coming up, we get an update from Fran Rabinowitz with the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents, who says paraprofessional roles and support staffers like bus drivers are top priority. But first, new COVID boosters are available, but pharmacies and providers in the state are slammed. The Connecticut Department of Public Health says that more than 46,000 residents have gotten the latest COVID-19 vaccine. They are acknowledging delays, which the Hartford Current has attributed to supply chain disruptions, insurance issues, and workforce woes. We got the latest on all things COVID in our state with Connecticut Department of Public Health Commissioner Manisha Jutani. This conversation was recorded earlier this morning. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Kat. Have you booked your booster appointment? What COVID questions do you have? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we know it's just—it's not just a COVID vaccine booster season, but it's also flu and RSV season. What are your primary recommendations for this time of year, especially as far as vaccinations go? Yeah, so thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk with you about this. So we know that as the Days get shorter as the days get colder. This is when respiratory viruses circulate at their peak. And the month of October is the time when usually these viruses start circulating more and more. And so the message that we really want people to remember is that this is the time to get your flu shot, to get your COVID shot. All people six months and older are recommended to get a shot this year. So regardless of when you may have received your last COVID shot, for some people, it may have been two years ago, it may have been a year ago, we're really encouraging and recommending people to go out and get both flu and COVID. And for those who are 60 and older, RSV is recommended that you discuss with your provider as to whether it's right for you, particularly for those that have lots of comorbid conditions or immunocompromised, it most certainly makes sense. The older you are, it makes more sense as well. And we do also have RSV vaccines because we know that this time of year is when this virus circulates in our youngest of infants as well. And so we can talk about that more as well. But there are opportunities this season to protect infants from RSV as well. And with what you just said, because you know there are the new COVID-19 boosters available, which the CDC recommends for everyone six months and, and up, as you mentioned, are there any Connecticut-specific re- recommendations on top of CDCs? Not really. It's a pretty simple, basic recommendation. Six months and older, this is to the time to get a COVID and flu shot. I think the one recommendation I would say, which is not different than the CDC or specific to Connecticut, but is that you know, we really want our families and our community to be as protected as possible before 
the big holidays come up going into this fall and winter season. And so, you know, I think giving yourself at least a few weeks before big gatherings may be happening, whether that's Halloween for some, whether there are other cultural holidays that you may have, for example, in my family tradition, Diwali is a particular holiday when people may be gathering. There are other Jewish holidays, other faiths holidays, you know, and then going into Thanksgiving and then the December holidays that so many people celebrate. These are all times for us to remember that this is when people are gathering and it's the best way to protect everyone in your family cross-generationally. And we just came off of the summer, rolling into the new school year, which is a huge um, area of gathering for, for many, many people coming from different places into one place. Are there is there anything specific that you're keeping tabs on as far as a rise in COVID cases over the last several weeks? Yeah, so absolutely. First of all, we've been watching all the viruses, but COVID particularly since the end of the spring and summer. So we've never stopped watching what's been happening. Uh, What we have started to do is updating our weekly website on our DPH portal, which can share these numbers with the public so that the public really understands where we're headed as well. I think anecdotally, a lot of people saw and heard that in the month of August, we started to see a rise in cases of COVID. And, you know, we don't have the same reporting requirements as during a public health emergency or the authority, uh, you know, in the way that we did earlier in these last several years. But what we do have is we do have requirements that all hospitalizations and deaths for COVID, for flu and for RSV be reported to the department. And positive tests are also reported to the department. And so from this, we can keep tabs on the number of people who are in the hospital with COVID. And what I can tell you is that in July, we were at all-time lows. So we had the number of patients in the hospital for COVID were in the 60s. And, you know, we've been higher, closer to 200 over the last several weeks in that ballpark. Uh, It it has somewhat... uh, plateaued right now. So I'm not entirely sure exactly how long we may be in a plateau before we can expect to see it go up again, which is what we've seen every winter season. So I don't think it's going to stay in a plateau. It will continue to go up at some point. But right now we're in a stable uh, state. And just to give people some framework of what does that mean, you know, 200 people in all our hospitals in the state, just to give a framework, In the height of the Omicron wave, we had over 1,900 people in the hospital with COVID. So we were in very, very manageable, tolerable levels. But these are the kinds of data that we look at when we start getting, trying to get a sense of how much COVID's impact is in our community here in Connecticut. Well, I think it's really good to hear that we are in a stable situation, much different from when we're having this conversation three years ago. And accessibility is also has also changed in terms of getting the vaccine, getting tests. But we also know that COVID-19 tests are getting a little bit harder or at least more expensive to come by these days. So do you have concerns about the shrinking access or to the frequency of testing? So I think one thing that many, many people may not be aware of, though, is that you can get four federal test kits, COVID test kits free again. So going online and getting those free test kits is something that our uh, federal organization called ASPR has decided to put out. And this is something that's available. So, uh, you know, again, you're absolutely right. 
that test kits have been, um, you know, more expensive, difficult to get, but you absolutely can do that again. And if you go to uh, www.covid.gov, that's where you can order free at-home test kits. And so every household is eligible to receive four free COVID rapid test kits delivered directly to your home. So that's at least one thing that the federal government has um, put out. The other thing to know is that, you know, we as a state delivered over 6 million test kits over the last several years. Uh, Many other places have had free test kits. You know, a lot of these test kits have had expiration dates, which have been extended and extended, um, you know, longer and longer by the FDA. So if you go to that same website, covid.gov, you can put in a, uh, you, you know, the the particular test kit that you have maybe in your house, if you still have some and see if it's still valid and not expired. So before you throw it out, make sure to check out that site because the expiration date may have been extended. And just another quick reminder for our listeners that you can go to covid.gov slash tests to get your free uh, tests from from covid.gov slash tests. So, um, Commissioner, you mentioned earlier, too, that you're expecting another rise this winter, which is fairly common. Do you have any idea of how, you know, like regular will this be seasonally or do you expect it to be higher or what are you seeing? So our CDC forecasting agency, so this was another agency set up within the CDC over the last uh, couple of years, and their job has really been to try to answer that question for us. And so one of the things that they have predicted for us so far is that, again, we don't know what our current numbers are looking like, but our healthcare system has generally been built for a bad COVID season, I mean, I'm sorry, a bad flu season, you know, we have been prepared to deal with that over many years. What we've seen now is that between flu, RSV, and COVID, there is a significant number of patients that are in the hospital that used to not be there before. And so with a moderate flu season, a sort of regular run-of-the-mill flu and RSV season, we're looking at a winter similar to last year. And so what does that mean? It means that, you know, our hospitals were able to manage, but they're definitely stretched. And I think in the setting of healthcare workforce shortages, you know, our hospitals have been preparing, have been trying to be ready for that. But that's what we've been alerting them to as well, is that this is the forecast we have so far. Now, again, that is not taking into account any, you know, new variant or some other thing that comes along that we are unprepared for at this point. But I think that we do need to be prepared that we're going to have a season at least similar to last year. Last year was a little different because RSV started peaking much earlier after all our children were back in normal life. Um, you know, and many of them did not have immunity from the year before season. And so that put stresses on the system that we were unprepared for last year. So this year, I think that Everybody has been preparing for all three viruses, have been trying to be ready for whatever surge may come. But I think at this point, what we're looking at is hopefully we have a a season similar to last year, which is still a pretty significant respiratory viral season for our healthcare system, but one that we should be able to manage. 
Right, and then we're here talking about different kinds of shortages as well with with staffing and at the hospitals, and also back to the COVID nineteen booster. There also has been shortages with this rollout. So, spoken to a lot of colleagues here, and they've told us that they had some trouble booking appointments at their local pharmacy.、Uh, we have Christina and Milford who sent us a comment about her issues booking appointments for her two and five year old. She says it's impossible. Pediatricians isn't getting any of the vaccines because they don't have available shots and don't vaccinate under five. At Walgreens, CVS, and the Griffin Hospital vaccine clinic is not open in Milford, where I live, as one clinic and unable to meet demand. So, Commissioner, is this something that you're hearing recently? You know, what are you hearing from from people with the conversations that you're that you're having? Are they getting appointments? Are they getting the vaccine? Yeah, and I totally appreciate those comments. We have been hearing those struggles that people have been having, and I'll like to frame this a little bit just so people understand how we've gotten here, what we are doing, or what's in our control to even try to do to alleviate this situation. So, just to take a step back, you know, during the pandemic, it was a federal public health emergency. All vaccine distribution was occurring from the federal government, and it was all paid for. It was all free. We have now transitioned out of the pandemic to the routine marketplace in terms of vaccines. So, what does that mean? In Connecticut, we are almost a universal vaccination system for pediatric patients. So, for children, what that means is that through our federal program and our state program, we do the purchasing for all vaccines that. Can then be ordered by pediatricians' practices and the like to be able to vaccinate kids. And during the pandemic, because COVID was a specific federal program, one-off program, it was not part of our routine childhood vaccination program. So pediatricians and other offices had to go through a lot of other steps that were required by the federal government in order to get COVID vaccines. And that was very onerous for a lot of practices. That that was the only vaccine they had to do that for. That has now gone by the wayside, and practices do not have to do anything else to get COVID vaccine other than order it from our system the way they order all other vaccines that they get in their practices. Now, this is something that we've been trying to educate practices about for many months, especially coming up to this fall. And getting them ready for the idea. Now, again, remember, a lot of these approvals for this most recent COVID vaccine just happened. They just happened over the last several weeks. So, a lot of these practices are not used to being able to do this as of yet. We are continuing to try to educate people that you can order COVID vaccines just the way you order any other vaccines, so that they can have availability, so that they can make those appointments for families. That want to be able to vaccinate their children now, and so this is a different system for many of the practices that they haven't been used to, and so we're trying to get people on board and bring them along. Now, the system for adults is different.、Uh, unfortunately, in our country, we do not have an adult vaccination program just the way we have a childhood vaccination program. So, what does that mean? It still means that COVID tests are free. The difference is, it's a complicated background in terms of how that is and where you can get them. So, I think our pharmacies are the places where vaccines are being distributed first and foremost by the manufacturers and by the the distributors. So, again, as I said, this is not the federal public health emergency anymore. So, our 
uh, manufacturers, Pfizer and Moderna, they have plenty of vaccine. There's no doubt about that. We have plenty of vaccine that will be distributed in our country. There seems to be a logjam at the distribution uh, step of this process. That is easing up every day. Every day there are more and more shots that are being available in the various places. These distributors are then sending them to the various places where there can be where they can be ordered. And then the last piece of this, and so you know, it's it's up to physician practices, um, you know, different uh, public health departments, other places where people may go to get a vaccine to decide whether they will get a an order of a given vaccine or not. And I think what we can say for sure is that our pharmacy partners, though it has been challenging for people to get, they certainly are some of the first that have been receiving these vaccines. So all I ask for people is that if you have had an appointment that got canceled and you're asked to make another appointment, you know, just stick with it. And I hate to say that same thing happened to me. So I know we've, we're all in the same place. Just stay with it. I appreciate that you're trying to do the right thing and get vaccinated. We all are just going to have to keep doing that, unfortunately, until we can all get through. And I know that more and more vaccines are being distributed day after day. And the last thing I just want to say is that the bridge program is a program funded by the federal government through the CDC, which it allows for underinsured and uninsured individuals to have a COVID vaccine covered. And this can be done at CVS, Walgreens, certainly at our federally qualified health centers as well, if you are a patient that usually attends those as well. But these are places that you can get a COVID vaccine and it will be free. Well, thanks for that. You basically answered my next question was whether or not uh, sticking to the appointment is what you would you would suggest. So everyone stick to your appointment if you if you have one. <laughs> and so yeah, and I, I will tell you, I mean, just, you know, I had the same experience. I made an appointment. It was canceled. Um, you know, I then actually walked into a pharmacy and said, do you have appointments for tomorrow by chance? And they said yes. And I made an appointment, you know, and so. Right. Uh, you know, I think we're we're all in the same boat. I do really understand that. Um, and but what I can tell you is there's plenty of vaccine. It's really at this distribution standpoint. So just I, you know, I appreciate your patience. Um, stick with it and you will get vaccinated. I know it, this this will ease up as more and more vaccine is available in the community. And so as accessibility becomes a bit more accessible, we also know there have been racial disparities in both COVID-19 vaccine distribution and COVID-19 deaths here in Connecticut. And I know that your department has worked on to address and reduce. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So during the pandemic, we had a very aggressive vaccination campaign that we tried to both do through our yellow vans, which were a partnership that we had where we had vans going to different communities to be able to vaccinate many different communities, particularly under-vaccinated communities up until that point. And again, providing accessibility, as you said. And so our goal now, because we are no longer in the public health emergency, we do not have funding to be able to do this kind of work. And sort of in the routine practice of public health, we are more the conduit of information, connecting people, working with our local health departments who are on the ground, trying to partner with other groups that can provide that accessibility. I think one of the challenges I'm hearing from certain groups is the cost of the vaccine and where the people who are vaccinating 
have had challenges with the idea that they may purchase vaccine, but then what if they don't have people come in to use it? Then that's a sunk cost for them. This is where the bridge program is really useful to us as a health department and in working with local partners and with our federally qualified health centers, our FQHCs. Because to be able to say that these will be covered, that we have the ability to do this and so that people can come in and get vaccinated for free and not worry about that, we're definitely doubling down on that. And so that's where working with our FQHCs, working with our local health departments who are boots on the ground, know where the pockets are, know where there are people that need to be connected to resources. And even if that's connecting people with local pharmacies, you know, I mentioned CVS and Walgreens participating in the bridge program for underinsured and uninsured individuals. There is also another mechanism called E True North, which is helping to provide these free vaccines to smaller sort of mom and pop pharmacies that may be in some of our more rural communities or even in our urban communities where you may not have a CVS or a Walgreens that's close by. And so these are some of the many ways that we are trying to work with our communities. One of the things I've also been working on with our Office of Local Health Administration, which works with our 60 local health departments and districts that exist in the state of Connecticut, is developing an advisory group of key leaders in our communities to help identify where are these pockets in our various communities. And, and these communities can exist in every type of environment that we have in Connecticut. And really having that connection with boots on the ground, knowing what is going on in a local community to bring that back to the Department of Public Health so we can understand what is happening in the local community and try to help figure out the solutions to be able to reach those people that are sometimes most impacted by these diseases and often have the least access. And again, for our listeners that we've been talking about the CDC's Bridge Access Program, and we'll have a link to that on our website at ctpublic.org slash where we live, as well as a link to get your free COVID-19 tests. And so, Commissioner, public health experts, as you know, have been under a lot of pressure since the start of the pandemic. Earlier this year, we spoke with Dr. Peter J. Hotez, who is a Connecticut native and renowned scientist, currently the dean of National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. His new book, The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science, A Scientist's Warning, came out last month and describes how the COVID-19 pandemic really deepened the anti-vaccine, as he calls it, anti-science movement. Let's take a quick listen to part of that interview. I think it's it's important, one, to, to like you say, stick by your guns and, and be able to speak about um, uh, health and science uh, in, information in detail and in accurate ways and and not to be fearful of when people weaponize health communication and when they actively promote disinformation to, to call it out as such and and you know it's a little bit easier for people like myself i mean i'm a i'm an academic professor and 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 but it's if you're um, a health official or if you're working for a local or state health agency um especially in, in in a red state, then it becomes really tough, and then you're trying to kind of strike that balance, and it's and and threading that needle is really problem. My wife says I use too many metaphors, so <laughs> um, threading that needle could be really 
really problematic and but it it's 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 so critically important to to do that because now what you're seeing is these these anti-science anti-vaccine groups are are not what they used to be We'd love to get your thoughts, Commissioner Jutani, on this very delicate balance, even in a blue state. So, yeah, I do completely understand and agree with many of the things that he's talked about for so many years. And, you know, I came from academia being at Yale for almost 20 years before taking this job. So I've seen both sides of it. And it is a challenge. It is a challenge that we face in public health. But one of the things I'm really grateful for I think in Connecticut is that although there is this type of information that's out there, what I've tried to do in my job is to be clear and concise with people in the public about what our recommendations are, why we recommend it, and try to meet people where they are, ultimately where I hope that they trust me and trust what I'm sharing is in their best interest because trust is at the crux of all health communication and whether people truly believe that you're invested in their best health and their best future and that of their families. And one of the things I've seen in Connecticut, although this is true, although I have also had, you know, God willing, not very serious attacks, but have had attacks as well, whether uh, verbal or other types of threats uh, that have happened in these, in this job, But I think one of the things I'm so grateful for is if you look at our immunization rates, our childhood immunization rates in the state of Connecticut, our immunization rates for, let's say, measles, mumps, and rubella, one of the many vaccines that children get, is higher than our levels were at the kindergarten level than pre-pandemic. All of our vaccination rates for childhood vaccinations are between 95 and 99% of children in the state of Connecticut, if you look at each of these vaccinations. And you can see this on public data that we have on our website. That is a real testament to the fact that in the state of Connecticut, people understand why we are asking them to do this. And by and large, they're doing it. And to say that we are ahead of where we were before the pandemic just makes me so proud of the citizens of Connecticut in terms of where we are. So to me, that says we need to continue to work with our citizens, continue to work with our families, communicate what we can. And although there are going to be those that make choices contrary to what we're recommending, I respect their choice, their ability to make that choice. My goal would be to continue to try to communicate why we are recommending what we're recommending and how it can be good for you, your family, the older people in your family, keeping kids in school. We know so many after effects of this pandemic. My goal is to keep as many kids in school, in person, full time as much as possible. And one of the ways to do that is getting them vaccinated against all these types of infections. So I just have to say that although I do recognize these challenges and they are a challenge, I am grateful for the partnership I have with the people in the state of Connecticut who have allowed us to do public health at its best so that Connecticut can be a beacon for public health in our country. Manisha Jutani, the Connecticut Department of Public Health Commissioner. Thank you so much for your time this morning and helping us understand the situation better. Thanks so much for having me again. 
Coming up, we get the latest from the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents on how they're tackling the rise in COVID cases on top of staffing shortages. What has the back-to-school season been like for you? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We just heard from the Connecticut Department of Public Health about the recent uptick in COVID cases and the shortage of COVID boosters. How are public schools faring in the state given the standing staffing shortages that deepened during the pandemic? Here with us to discuss is Fran Rabinowitz. She's the executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Fran, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Of course, so Fran, I want to jump straight to it. I want to ask, you know, have you heard from Connecticut superintendents about COVID, flu, or RSV outbreaks in their districts? Or are you hearing anything about the uptick adding to these staffing shortages? Well, I am not hearing about outbreaks across the state. I mean, there are some isolated cases where there were um, larger numbers of COVID cases among staff and students. But at this point in time, any COVID case um, that causes an absence of a staff member certainly is an issue. And um, certainly, you know, for the students as well, um, there just aren't the substitutes available to cover the classrooms when that staff member is out. And so earlier we had talked about with the commissioner on the frequency for vaccinations and testing. Do you have any concerns around that? Actually, no. I'm, I am, um, you know, in favor, certainly, of our students being vaccinated. And I think most are. I do remember pre-COVID um, going through the... Um, the legislature and that session being um, very um, emotional with parents who, you know, were um, anti-vaccine. And I, I do respect everyone's right, but I, I actually do believe that we should vaccinate our, um, our children and our adults. Um, and I guess I've, 
real, really rely on um, the Department of Public Health, CDC, to tell us that um, these vaccinations are safe. So we have a listener, Kathleen, who left us a comment on Twitter. She says, can't get a vaccine for my three-year-old because of backlogs, because of many chain pharmacies don't vaccinate those under five years old. Thinking of pulling my child from school because there are no precautions being taken to protect children in school. Oh, what's your response to that, Fran? Is that something that you're hearing? I am not hearing that we are certainly not doing the six feet apart anymore um, and and that type of thing. Um, we are treating the COVID that the COVID um, um, virus or very much as we're um, treating flu, um, et cetera. But we are certainly asking parents and families to keep their children at home um, for the five days and come back, um, you know, wearing a mask for five days. And I do believe that we are um, doing that. Frankly, um, from the whole pandemic time, I certainly would advocate for wearing a mask um, if you are feeling ill or if you're recovering from illness. I think that that is um, incredibly important. And so we know that there has been an ongoing staffing shortage, and of course the pandemic exacerbated an existing issues with that. Can we talk about where where does staffing shortages stand today? You know, what are the positions that are most affected? Um, I'd be happy to talk about that. There are continue to be um, major staffing shortages in Connecticut. Um, I would say. They haven't changed. I've always served in challenged districts um, in the urbans, and I would say to you they have not changed. They've just become more statewide, and that is um, certainly in math, science, world languages, um, uh, special education, social workers, school psychologists. Those are the greatest weaknesses, I mean, the greatest shortages among certified staff. And um, I can't tell you how important our paraprofessionals are as well. And that is definitely um, continuing to be a shortage area. So we got about a minute left here, but I want to ask more about the support uh, that staff, uh, the support of staff shortages. We know uh, bus drivers recently went on strike. You know, what are you hearing out there? So I have a very different take on this. Um, many people talk about salaries, and I do absolutely believe salaries play a part in this. I also believe working conditions especially in our challenge districts. I know from personal experience that teachers leave if they don't feel successful. And sometimes we have working conditions in which they can't feel successful. But the foundation for this, I believe, is over the last 10 to 15 years, I think we have suffered as a profession from lack of respect for our profession, lack of understanding that we are professionals, that there is an art and a science to um, teaching. And just because you went to school doesn't make you an expert on um, how to how to teach our students. And I think that comes across loud and clear 
in many instances. And um, I think that has caused um, candidates to think twice about going into the teaching profession. You've been listening to Fran Rabinowitz, who's the executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. She'll be staying with us and we'll continue this very conversation after a quick break. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're checking in on public schools in the state amid continued reports of staffing shortages from bus drivers to paraprofessional support. And here to talk about all of that is Fran Rabinowitz. She's the executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. So, Fran, we were talking a little bit about this earlier, but I want to ask again, how have school staffing shortages or coverage of this issue changed in recent years? Has there been sort of a spreading out to more suburban districts or is it more focused on some districts? Well, I think that the staffing shortages um, have affected all districts statewide um, to different degrees. In many of our suburban districts, if you check in with them now, most have covered um, their, their staffing. I think there's still short paraprofessionals social workers, and psychologists. But for the most part, their classrooms are covered. Um, What's different for those districts is there used to be a huge pool of candidates, and that is no longer the case. Um, The candidate pool has has definitely um, become smaller. In the challenge districts, you still have many, many openings, um, especially in the area of special education teachers, uh, math and science teachers, bilingual teachers, um, and certainly the mental health professionals. Um, And how do we handle it? In the past, in most districts, you had um, the ability to hire substitutes, um, and they were um, pretty readily available. Um, in most districts. Today, that is not the case. Substitutes are hard to come by. And um, so what you find is um, high school teachers taking on extra classes. um, And at the elementary level, many times you will find a third grade class being split up and shared by other teachers or a principal taking on a class, etc. I've got a last question for you here, Fran. We were talking about sort of the undervaluing of the teaching profession and also demoralization uh, you were alluding to earlier. Uh, Our other show, The Wheelhouse, covered the politics and power of school boards yesterday morning and opened with a very WWE-level montage of parents spouting off at board meetings. And just thinking about that element of politicization and polarization, we know the environment is so different now for teachers and, and all teaching staff. So on top of being spread thin, as we've been talking about, that's a lot of pressure on superintendents and teachers. You know, what are your thoughts on that? There is great pressure on um, superintendents and teachers, and I think superintendents and boards try their very best to filter that pressure so that teachers aren't feeling it um, to the degree that they can. Um, but honestly, um, as a former superintendent, 
I can tell you, and when I listen to my colleagues, they can't filter all of it. And that does really make a difference in a teacher's ability to feel very comfortable in the classroom um, teaching what we have always taught um, and and, you know, feeling comfortable about doing it and not being attacked by um, parents um, for, for teaching things that are part of the curriculum. You've been listening to Fran Rabinowitz. She's the executive director of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. Thank you so much, Fran, for being on the show again today. Thank you, Catherine, for inviting me. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. But a quick reminder to our listeners that this is our fall fun drive. And here are two of my colleagues that will tell you more in a little bit.